0: Okay, speaking of friendship, let's turn to First Samuel eighteen. Speaking of friendship, this is all about friendship today. We've been going through the book of First Samuel on Sunday mornings. We took a break last week um, to talk about prayer and talk about uh, the posture of prayer and why it's a spiritual habit, why it's something that comes natural and yet needs to be flexed and cultivated and built. Um, as Christians. Today we're talking about, I'm calling this sermon the sacrament of friendship, because I want to get the point across that it's sacred and that it's a gift of God. I hope to get I hope the text will, I know the text will show that. So we're actually gonna be reading three texts from 1 Samuel. I'm gonna read 1 Samuel 18, 3 through 4. Then we're gonna jump over to chapter 19 and read 4 through 5. Then we're going to jump over to chapter 20 and read verse 40 through 42. Okay, I'll have it on the screen for you, but just if you want to follow along, we're in 1 Samuel 18, 3 through 4. We'll jump to 19, 4 through 5, and then we'll jump over to chapter 20, 40 through 42. But before we do that, let's let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for Eric and Victoria. Thank you for bringing them to our church. Thank you for how you've saved them and brought them together. Thank you for their youth, their, um, their passion for you, their wanting to follow you with all their heart to learn more about you. Thank you that their relationship started through talking about you and arguing about you and thinking rigorously together. What a beautiful thing. And I pray that you would um, use our church, our family here to continue that growth. Lord, I also pray that you would help us understand what you have to say to us here in the Bible. God, that you would give me um, humility and wisdom to be able to rightly divide the word of truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start with chapter 18, three through four. As soon as he had finished speaking, actually, I'll start with verse one. (laughs) As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. What an amazing statement. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So David is now living in the, in the palace courts. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Now jump on over to chapter 19 and let's start with verse four over there. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, let not the king sin sin against his servant David because he has not sinned against you and because his, his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his own hands and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Okay, last one. Now we'll go over to chapter 20, verse 40 through 42. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, go and carry them back to the city. And as soon as the boy had had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. Okay, that's what we're talking about today. We've been in First Samuel On Sunday mornings, which means we've been swept away into the life of David. Um, No other character in ancient writings has more written about him. There's no other life talked about more in, in the ancient world than there is about David. And the life of David, recorded in chapters 18 through 20, are arguably the most difficult years of David's, at least his young life. You might say, really? Even more dangerous than Saul hunting him through the wilderness? That sounded pretty hard. Even more difficult than that when he's sleeping in caves and on the run. Well, the logic goes, yes, because in these chapters, Saul is hunting David in Saul's own house. David lives with Saul. There's no escaping, there's no getting around. You can imagine the kind of tension that's there in the house. Through this period of of life, David is living in the royal court with King Saul and he's going out, he's being faithful and the more faithful he's being, David's kind of got the Midas touch. He's just being blessed by God. He's being, everything he sets his hand to, he's more and more successful because we know that he's been anointed by God. The spirit of God is upon him. But the more success he is having, the more apparent God's favor and anointing is on his life, the more jealous King Saul is getting. The more angry, the more hateful King Saul is getting. So you can just imagine that kind of awkward tension going on. That kind of... um, what kind of Saul am I going to get today? Or what kind, of, what kind of Saul am I going to get moment to moment? Is he going to be in a good mood? Is he going to be in a bad mood? This grows and grows until Saul's jealousy just gives way to unbridled, murderous rage. He just f- flies off the handle at times. He just loses his mind at times and throws a spear at David. In fact, There's six attempts on David's life during this period. If you went back and read 18, 19, and 20, you would count six attempts to kill David, three that are covert, that were kind of um, contrived in a behind-the-scenes kind of way, and three that were overt, three that were just outright murderous attempts on David's life. So you can imagine the volatile, dangerous environment that David was living in. And we all talk about how important it is to have a home that you can go to and feel safe, where you can rest, where you can relax. Safety's a big deal at a a house. You you, you deal with stuff at work, you deal with stuff out and about. You need a home where you can come home and kind of... Rest and know that people are safe. You can, say, you can say what people know what you mean instead of people taking things out of context. You can walk around in your underwear. You can, you can do whatever you want. Can you imagine a, a, a house that's so volatile? You don't know what you're gonna get. Instead of coming home to a place where you can rest, you're coming home to more angst, more on guard, constantly looking over your shoulder. That's where David was living. You can imagine this, the tension Saul was very, very manipulative. He was a very jealous, oppressed, possessed, obsessed guy. And David was the main trigger of this inner sickness in in Saul's life. David was the one that set it off. The more he was blessed. And poor David was just being David, right? So that's the environment. And so these three scriptures that we're going to focus on this morning are sprinkled throughout that context. That's what I want you to see. There's one in the beginning, there's one in the middle, and there's one at the end. These three scriptures tell us that God used David's friendship with Jonathan to get him through that kind of an environment. That's the idea behind this passage. That's the point of the writer mentioning these things. It was God using friendship so in the beginning, end, and in middle of this dark saga, you have a reference to this incredible friendship with Jonathan as a sacrament. You know what a sacrament is? A sacrament is an object that release, or a, or a ritual that releases God's grace into your life. That's the idea behind a sacrament. Um, baptism is a sacrament. Communion is a sacrament. It releases the grace of God into your life through memory or through the senses, through something mundane even. Um, The sacraments use things like water in baptism, bread and wine in communion, mundane everyday things and turns them into something holy and beautiful and incredible uh, that release the grace of God into your life. And here, God is using friendship as the sacrament that gets David through. So today we're gonna learn about friendship. It's really important. And here's what we're gonna learn. Um, this text tells us, and the Bible at large, will back it up. will tell us that that friendship, friendship number one is essential. It's a must. It's not that some people are lucky to have friends and others are not. Everybody, every single person needs friendship. It gets us through life because it's literally at the center of the universe. I'm gonna show you that biblically. Friendship's at the center of the universe, and therefore, it's at the center of what it means for you to be human. It's anthropological. You can't be human without friends. Okay? That's number one. Secondly, this story t- shows us the stuff of friendship the stuff. Of real friendship. What makes a good friendship? What, what will make a lasting, eternal, godly, growing, thriving, vital, selfless, incredibly life-giving friendship? What does that? That's, it'll show us that. Um, and finally, we'll see that friendship is indeed sacramental. It's redemptive. Friendship is redemptive. So number one, friendship gets us through life because it's essential to human flourishing. Um, again, I want to point you to the literary structure of this Path of this text, okay? That is, when I say literary structure, I'm talking about how the narrator chose to order his material, okay? How the narrator chose to order his material, the narrati- narrator intentionally brackets what most scholars say is the worst, most dangerous time in David's life, with a, he brackets on both sides with a record of covenantal vulnerable, and radically sacrificial friendship. He brackets it on both sides. It's clear what the writer is getting at. The grace of God that got David through one of the darkest times of his life was friendship. In other words, with this literary structure, the writer is saying that David's friendship with Jonathan saved David's life. It was life or death. And it saved his life. It kept, kept it from being destroyed. Unmistakably, David would not have survived this period, literally, if it wasn't for his friendship with Jonathan. So here's the point. Life's really hard. Have you noticed that? Life's really hard. Even in the time that we had this morning, I was uh, talking with a few of you, and with quite a bit of you, you've said, it's really tough right now. I'm really being stretched. I'm really being challenged. I'm feeling the strain. I'm feeling pressure. I'm feeling, I don't know what life's about. I'm feeling a little disoriented. It was everything I could do just to get here. Those are the things that I'm hearing. And I, The more I talk to people, the more I knew in my heart, okay, Lord, you're on track. <laughs> you're doing it right, God, <laughs> as if he needs that from me. So you're going to face pain, suffering tragedy, heartache you'll be upended, shattered threatened, these are all real, to some degree these are real experiences of all living people in this fallen world we're all going to go through really dark times and without close friends we will not get through those things that, the way God, on the other end, the way God intended us to be without close friends and what that means is not only do we need friends, it means that we need to be friends, right? Not only do we need friends, we also need to ask the question, how do I be this kind of a friend? I was sitting through a presentation um, about the Union Gospel Mission. By the way, I've been meeting with uh, the leaders of the Union Gospel Mission and they are going to partner with our church soon. They're gonna be doing some presentations. They're gonna come and hang out with us. And during our lunchtime, they're gonna be giving us presentations on how we can help homeless in our neighborhoods. So that's gonna be awesome. They wanna ongoingly partner with us. I'm so excited. Emmanuel in November is, is opening up a men's shelter here that we, are, we can partner with and get involved with. There's also their closet. But anyways, I was at this presentation and this, the, the guy from the Union Gospel Mission that was presenting, the presenter said, how many of you, if you were to lose your jobs today, would have someone that would help you out or take you in um, until you got back on your feet? And everybody raised their hands at this church that I was at. Everyone, the whole room, it was a, a bigger group than this. All of them raised their hands. And he said, that is the difference between you and and someone who's homeless. Yes, there are money issues, educational issues. Yes, there are societal things going on. Yes, there's gentrification and all of those things. But he said, but all of those things can be overcome with what the Union Gospel calls relational resources. Someone that we can call, as I began going out with the Union Gospel mission, they have this this, program that they, that, that they do called Search and Rescue, and that is on Friday nights you sign up to help, you go down to their base, and they have these uh, a fleet of 15 passenger vans loaded with soup, socks, uh, jackets, blankets, hot chocolate, coffee, uh, loaded with all these things, and we go out and we go into these homeless camps, and we just simply offer these things and love and relationship and support. So powerful. And as I began getting to know the people that we were serving, it was remarkable how many of them said, I'd say, how did you become homeless? And it was remarkable how many of them said, I lost my job and I just had no one to call. My parents have just passed away. I don't have, I'm an only child. I don't have any brothers or sisters. My grandparents have passed away. I'm just, I'm all by myself in this world. Or another guy I remember said, I I took a bus all the way out here. When I got here, I learned that my dad had passed away. He was the only one I had left. I got a job. The pandemic hit. I lost my job. And I became a drug addict on the street. I wasn't a drug addict before. But just to get through the cold nights and all of those things, I started taking substances and drinking just to get through it. And now I'm hooked. And I thought about that presentation, the power of relationship. All of these, can be, these things can be overcome by friendship, time, investment. Friendship is essential to life and you don't have to be a Christian to understand this anymore. This is not necessarily anymore just a Christian doctrine. There are now published studies by sociologists, healthcare workers who say unequivocally that the more close friends that you have, the longer life you will live. Uh, you'll have better overall health, you'll experience less anxiety, less depression, and the, less, the, the list goes on and on and on. This is a well now scientific fact at this point. But what all of these fields of science are now discovering is what the Bible has been saying all along from the very beginning, All along, the Bible's view of mankind, again, I use the term anthropological, what does it mean to be human? The Bible's view of mankind is that we are, at our core, social beings made to be in deep relationship with other people. This is what we were made for. It's a part of who you are. In fact, in God's creative process of mankind, God makes Adam and then he makes another human, why? Because God says, this is in paradise, by the way. God says, quote, it is not good for mankind to be alone. I imagine he could have said a lot of things that it's not good for man to be. You know, if a man, it's not good for mankind to trip and break his leg, it's not good. But the, the big thing that it's not good for us Is to be alone. In other words, because mankind is made in the image of God, who is himself a plurality in his very essence, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. God knows that man was literally not designed to be alone. One of the worst punishments you can do to a person is isolate them for a long period of time. Because of the doctrine of the Trinity, and by the way, Christianity alone, no other religion believes in a Trinity, Christianity alone believes that friendship is at the very core of God himself. Christianity believes that friendship is at the essence of God. A friendship then is what the universe is made from. As we see the Im- and as we as images of God, we're made, um, we're made for it like a fish is made for water. In fact, let me let me go even deeper for you. Before there was a universe. Before there was a universe. Before the Earth. Before reality, as we now experience it and know it, before creation, there was an eternal friendship of divine persons who perfectly and intimately loved each other and knew the joy of serving each other and revolving around each other. Before anything else, there was an eternal, divine friendship. The Trinity is not static. It is a, it is a constant, eternal, loving, and preferring of someone else. So in a sense, God is a friendship. God has friendship at his very heart and that's why it's in you. That's why you need it. That's why you can't get away from it. That's why you crave it. For some of us, we hate that we crave it. We hate that we need it and we try our best to avoid it, but we need it all the same. So like David and Jonathan, you will never be able to live life the way you were designed without deep, committed, vulnerable, intimate friendships. So that's point number one. It's essential. you got to have it. you got to be it. But what makes a good friendship? What's the stuff of friendships? What's the stuff of a life-giving friendship? What does it take? David and Jonathan are one of the greatest case studies in the Bible when it comes to learning about what it means to be friends, okay? Um, we see a few things. Number one, at, at its foundation, we see the idea of a covenant. We see the idea of a covenant. Let me read it to you. This is the first one. This is 1 Samuel eighteen three. It says, then Jonathan, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Okay, now jump over to chapter 20. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. So at the foundation of good friendship, lasting friendship is the idea of a covenant. What made David David and Jonathan's bond so strong was the foundation of covenant and that was the bedrock of their relationship. They made a covenant what is a covenant well here in our text and throughout the bible actually you can see at least two elements that come together to make a covenant at least two elements that come together to make a covenant one they enjoyed one another they were passionate for one another their souls were knit together. They had something in common. They believed in each other. They loved each other. They wanted the best for each other. And because of that, secondly, that led them to be committed to each other. So there was a belief in each other, in the best for each other, and therefore a commitment to each other. So there's this remarkable balance involved in a covenant. On the one hand, if it were only feelings, if it were only emotion... If it were only passion, you know, how well you like someone or how well a person meets your own needs when they're around, there would be no strength and endurance. There'd be no teeth in a relationship, in a friendship like that. I think a lot of relationships in the West are like that. As soon as the feeling changes, as soon as it becomes inconvenient, as soon as the person stops making you feel a certain way... As soon as the person is a little more needy than what you'd like them to be, the relationship begins to crumble. On the other hand, if a friendship were based solely on duty and grit, there'd be no life in the relationship. There'd be no joy. There'd be no enjoyment. There'd be no worship. There'd be no vitality. Therefore, it needs to be both. A covenant friendship is uniquely strong because it has strong elements of both duty and feelings passion and promise it's both and that makes it extremely strong this mixture found in biblical covenant friendship i think is really what's missing in our culture Um, in in any city uh, particularly in our city friendships like these are really rare Um, it's very hard to make friends in seattle it's very difficult um, if, you're, if you're visiting or you just moved here, you know this. You felt this. In fact, I'll just be straight up with you. There is a actually fairly well-known caricature about the atmosphere of our city. Did you know that? We call, they call it the Seattle chill or the Seattle freeze. I guess that's depending on if it's really bad, you know. Someone came through uh, from California in the wintertime and they said, the hospi- they said, quote, the hospitality here is as warm as the weather. Is as warm as the weather. In other words, cold, cold. I think generally the reasons for this are twofold. This is what I think generally speaking, but I think it's largely true. First of all, people either look at friendship as commodities, as products to use in order to meet their own needs and therefore they end up hurting other people to get their own needs met. Or two, people have been hurt in a relationship like that and so they simply don't want to open up anymore because they don't want to risk being hurt. And ironically, they end up becoming just like the people that hurt them, using others to get their own needs met but not being vulnerable enough to get hurt themselves. One way to avoid being hurt, it, you can either stay away from people altogether, which is really hard to do because you need friendship, like we just said. We need, we need it. Or control others so that you can get your needs met, but never really allow yourself to be vulnerable. Either way, here's the hallmark of a a failing relationship, of a failing friendship. Whether you're using others or protecting yourself from others, either way, your individual rights and your individual needs take precedent. That's what marks the friendships, society, relationships in our culture. My needs take precedent. Okay, Both parties in modern friendships are ultimately using the relationship to meet their own individual needs. But when these relationships no long, when these needs are no longer met or if someone else comes along that meets my needs at a better price, to put it bluntly, to put it in a consumer way, the friendship begins to dissolve at that point and ultimately ends, usually causing trauma and hurt to one or both people. Because of this we live in a city that desperately wants relationship but also desperately avoids it that's the tension of our of our time a covenant friendship is different because in a covenant friendship like jonathan and david your individual needs are placed under your commitment to the health and thriving of the other person that's what you see in jonathan i'll read that again In a covenant friendship, your individual needs are placed second. They're still there. It's not ignored. It's not stuffed or pretend like you don't have needs. That's not it. But they're placed under, second, your commitment to the health and thriving of the other person. In a friendship based on a covenant, again, that's both passion and promise, right? Feeling and commitment. Your responsibility is first to the relationship and the betterment, healing, and wholeness of the other person. Relationships are hard in Seattle because we think, if I can control you enough to meet my needs without without getting hurt, that's how far I'm going to let you in. But the moment you need something from me, the moment I'm required to let you in where I don't want you to be, that's where the relationship starts to begin to unravel and fall fall apart. And that makes relationships here very fragile and very precarious, very difficult to sustain. It inevitably causes us to choose people by categorizing them, almost instantly by the way. We size each other up into categories, why? So we know how to act or what to say in order to get the response to meet our needs. We're immediately assessing where someone is from, race, gender, how much money someone makes, what their politics are, what kind of theology they have, what their opinions are, so we can maybe mold or shift or change in such a way so that we can get attention, affirmation, affection, whatever it is that we need. Social scientists tell us that the human brain does this within seconds of of entering into a room. Immediately, we're like, we're categorizing those who I wanna be in with, those who I wanna keep out. What can I do to get into those who I wanna be in, into? How can I manipulate? How can I change? How can I get what I need from that person? How do I keep these people away from taking too much from me? We do this without thinking about it almost instantaneously. But covenant, covenant friendships won't do this. A covenant friend sees you and believes in you and loves you and wants to contribute to your full body, to your full body thriving in health even if it doesn't meet my needs in particular. Where are you getting this? Well, I'm getting it from Jonathan. Look at Jonathan. Within minutes of making a covenant with David, within minutes, he gives up his own rights to the kingdom. Within minutes, he gives the the kingdom away. He gives up his own dreams, his own aspirations for the betterment of David right away. Why? Because it's built on covenants. He immediately loses his rights to kingship so David, so David can reach his full potential. He loses the favor of his father. Jonathan does. He takes the brunt of his father's hostility towards David. Jonathan steps in between and takes it on himself so David can be safe and protected. And later we're going to see that it even takes Jonathan's life Do you see how utterly different this kind of friendship is than what we're used to here? Not only is this a covenant friendship, but the relationship can be extremely vulnerable. There's also vulnerability because of the safety that they give to each other. Did you notice all the kissing and hugging here between two grown warrior men? You might think that's a little odd, but just read the Bible. It's actually everywhere in the Bible. It's It's happening all the time. Friends are weeping and kissing on each other all the time in the Bible actually. Uh, I think of uh, in the book of Acts when Paul is insistent to go to Jerusalem even though the church knows that it might cost him his life and this will be the last time that we ever see you. Every city that the guy went, people were just weeping and crying and kissing all over him because they loved him so much. David and Jonathan are not afraid of, the point is David and Jonathan are not afraid of being real with each other of letting each other in to the holy of holies of each other's hearts. Why? Because they've proven that they love one another and won't use their weaknesses against one another. They're safe people. I can be silly. I can go out, we can go out to eat together. We can go on walks together. I can share my moments together. I can talk freely without worrying about you taking me out of context because you know what I mean. I mean. You know, there's been people who have heard me say something and they've reported it to one of my friends. Did you hear that? Pastor Mike said this. And one of my friends had said, Oh, you just need to know Mike. Here's what he meant by that. He didn't mean this. Here's what he meant. Why? They have an intimacy with me, a friend. They know me. Friendships, the, the deep friendships are people that we can let in because they've earned the right to wound us. They know and trust each other with the most delicate and hurt parts of themselves, and there's something sacramental about that. That's why the Bible says, confess your sins one to another so that you can be healed, that you can be freed. There's nothing quite like, I'm telling you, there's nothing quite like being completely, totally, and fully vulnerable with someone who is safe and has earned the right to wound you. I don't know if you've experienced that, but there's nothing quite like it, it's, it's incredible. And there, is, there may not be anything more fulfilling than giving that gift of friendship to, to somebody else. To, to have the honor, and I, I am, this is why I love my job, really, it's not the preaching and other things. I love being a pastor because so many people give me the honor of being let in to some of the most vulnerable places of their lives. And I treat it very, very carefully because I know it's sacred. To have the honor of someone letting you into the most vulnerable holy of holies of their soul, kind of the, you, you feel when you're in a, a friendship like that that I should take my shoes off because I'm on holy ground here. Someone's letting me in. This is amazing. Just through listening or reminding them of God's unfailing love for them, or just simply saying to them, I still love you. Nothing's changed for me. And to feel them release. Or lovingly wounding them through confrontation. Some of the best friends in my life have come to, come to me privately and said, Mike, you're better than that. I don't want to ever see you doing that again. Oh, it hurts, but it hurts so good. It hurts so good. The relationship will have an element, and so because of this, again, now think about this, because it's not consumer-driven, because if I'm your friend, I am for the betterment of you, what does that mean? That means confrontation is inherently baked in. You're going to confront each other. You're going to fight. You're going to argue, like Eric and Victoria. They're not afraid to sharpen each other, right? Right? Just through listening, but also through processing, through challenging. It's a gift. It's an absolute gift. We, because we live in a a consumer world, a consumer environment, we flee confrontation. We live in a cancel culture. The moment you say something that someone doesn't agree with, you're unfriended or you're blasted or your relationships end. The church can be different. The church can be a place of covenant relationships where even though we don't see eye to eye on everything, we love each other. We're committed to one another. We can say things. In fact, some of my, I've been blessed to have some extremely, extremely close friends since I was a little boy. That we're still, I was just on a, I almost didn't finish the sermon because I was talking to him last night for two hours on the phone where he was actually confronting me and saying some very difficult things for me to hear happened last night. I thought, how apropos. I'm I'm gonna be teaching about this tomorrow morning. This is great. Thanks for hurting me. (laughs) But you know, um, those I have come to expect, those relationships are gonna be more confrontive because the person loves me enough and I love that person enough to say, hey, stop it. I don't wanna see you raise your kids like that. You shouldn't lose your temper at your boy like that. You shouldn't... All these things. Hey, you're better than that. Superfic- now, superficial friends won't like this. This is a real test of friendship. Here's a real test of friendship. Um, well, here's a real test. Can a friend let you in or can you let a friend into de- even your decisions? That'll really tell you How close you are there are a lot of people who seem like friends because they want to be with you they want to have fun they laugh with you you spend some great times together but when it comes to their decisions no one has the right to tell them what to do except themselves no one has the right into that when a person says I have the right and only I have the right to make decisions for myself and so they don't let people into their decision-making they're not really true close friends at that point Because the Bible, you know how the Bible describes close friendships as iron sharpening iron. That's how the Bible describes a friendship. That means you're arguing, you're wrestling, you're discussing things, you're bringing your friends into your decisions, and you're telling them the motives. Hey, I've got this opportunity, but and it's great, and it seems logical and great. But I've got to tell you, my heart, I I really feel like this is a way for me to save myself. It's becoming an idol. You can let them into that. And they can apply God's grace. Or they can ask you, is this becoming too big for you? It's great, but is this too big? Is this too much? Or a friend can say, hey, the Bible said that God won't give you anything you can't handle. I lovingly want to tell you this. Hey, you can handle this. You need some strength right now. You need kind of a, add a like, hey, strap your man pants on and get after it. Get up. Let's go. God's with you. I'm with you. We're doing this together. Let's go, man. We can do that. But superficial friends don't want that because my individual needs are more important than anything else. So the moment you require transparency, especially in my decisions, the friendship will start to feel distant, cold. Covenant friends are transparent. Finally, friendship is sacramental. Friendship is sacramental. So it's essential. The stuff that it's made of is covenantal and vulnerable. And finally, this, these texts tell us that friendship is sacramental. Where do you get the power to be this kind of a friend? That's what we've got to ask, right? I mean, we all want this kind of a friend, don't we? We all want to have this kind of a friend, someone that's loyal, that sticks to it. But how can we be this kind of a friend? How can we be like this? I mean, there are friends, and then there are Jonathan kind of friends. Like, life-changing friends. You know what I'm saying? Friends that, like, your life would not be the same without them. Um, Eugene Peterson, um, he has this great quote. He says, friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It's every bit as significant as prayer and fasting, like the, sacrament, the sacramental use of water in baptism and bread and wine in communion, friendship takes what is common and turns it into something that is holy. We talked about that early, earlier. Peterson is saying that there's something about friendship, covenantal, vulnerable friendship, that like a sacrament, releases God's grace into your, into your life. And you see that here. Because, because of Jonathan... David was saved. He was protected from evil. And he was set free and released to become all that he was meant to be, which was what? King. There would be no King David without friend Jonathan. All because his friendship with Jonathan. Remember we said that covenant friends put their own needs below the health of others? Jonathan, look look at this. Look at verse 4. Um, of chapter 18, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt and David went out, went out and was successful wherever he sent him. He was successful because of the buoy of this friendship. Jonathan took off his robe, which meant that in order, uh, in order to be David's friend, Jonathan gave up his dream of being a king. Think of that. You're the next in line to the most powerful position in the nation and all the prestige and perks that come with it. What what a remarkable person Jonathan is that he saw, no, I see God's call on David's life for this. I'm gonna step out of the way and give up what so much of us would just have an iron grip on. David gives it up, takes off his robe, puts it on his friend and says, I will become less so that you will become greater. It's like a John the Baptist moment what he did with Jesus. Secondly, we're told that Jonathan gave David his sword, which is an incredibly vulnerable thing. In ancient days, when you gave someone a sword at the hilt, you were saying, I'm gonna gonna surrender and let you do to me whatever you want. You know, when you gave your, if, if you were in a battle and you gave your sword to the other commander in retreat in surrender, You're saying, if you choose to kill me in front of all of, in front of both of our armies, so be it. An incredibly vulnerable thing, incredibly vulnerable. You were allowing them to do whatever they wanted to you. And in this, Jonathan was telling David, I will serve you, my friend, until the death, until death. And that's exactly what ended up happening. That's exactly what ended up happening. If you keep reading this whole story, which we will, we'll get there in a year or two. (laughs) If you keep reading this, this whole story, you'll find that because Jonathan was a covenantal friend, not a user, not a consumer, but a covenantal friend, because of that, he died. See, Jonathan had other options, right? Didn't he have some other options? He could have sided completely with his father and helped him kill David, and had the throne all to himself. That was an option. He could have done that. Or he could have sided completely with David, and got on the run, and fought against his own father, who was losing his ever-loving mind. He could have thought, David, my my dad's going bonkers. I'm going to join your team, and let's lead raids together. Jonathan was a mighty warrior. He could have done that too. But because Jonathan was covenantal, In all of his relationships, he was actually loyal. He found a way to be loyal to both David and his dad at the same time, and it cost him his life. He was a loyal friend, and he was a loyal son. Because of this, he got David away and protected him while simultaneously staying with his dad even when he was going insane. Eventually, in order to protect David and stay loyal to his father, he gave up being able to ever see David again. In fact, the verse that I read to you in chapter 20, that's the last time David and Jonathan will be together. That's it. He gave that up and joined his father in a crazy suicidal military action that ended up costing him and his dad both their lives. To stay loyal to his father to do something that was crazy, he stayed with him, but also protected David at the same time. <sighs> Did you know if you're caught in a feud between you and some, or between two parties, there's a way to stay loyal to both, but only at great cost to yourself. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of the friend. David was literally saved through the wounds of Jonathan. That's the story of their friendship. If you want a headline for your theological newspaper of the friendship of David and Jonathan, David was literally saved through the wounds of his friend Jonathan. Because Jonathan laid down his life for David, David became king. And David lived into the fullness of his calling and his potential, but only because someone else decided to die. Jesus, Jesus has this great line about friends. I'm sure you'll know it. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's the, bedrock of christian friendship that's why it's strong that's why it lasts that's why it endures think of jesus think of jesus he came into our world as the ultimate friend did he not he took off his robe and he lost his throne did you know that He took off his robe and he lost his throne. He took off his sword, if you would, in an act of cosmic vulnerability and he died on the cross for his friends, for you and for me. The friendship of David and Jonathan runs straight through, straight to the cross for sure. Like Jonathan, Jesus stayed loyal To us, on the one hand, and God's cosmic justice on the other. You see that? God stayed loyal to, or Jesus stayed loyal to both. To us and God's cosmic justice. And the only way he could do that was to die in your place. That's the only way it could work. Now think. Think of this. If David was saved, protected, and released into his greatest potential because of the wounds of his friend. Think of this, everybody. This is it all. It comes down to this. This is application. If David was saved, protected, and released into his greatest potential because of the wounds of his friend, Jonathan, how much more are you saved, protected, and released into your full potential because of the wounds of your friend, Jesus? What did we say the stuff of friendship is made of? Covenant and vulnerability, right? That's the stuff of friendship. Covenant and vulnerability. Vulnerability? Did Jesus have that? Jesus died naked on a cross for you and me. Can't get much more vulnerable than that. The most powerful, protected being in all of the cosmos Vulnerably came as a baby and in the incarnation was able to be touched and held and rocked, potentially dropped. All of those things was born in a manger in the dark in a cave with no running water, no latex gloves, no people with masks on, no sanitation. Talk about vulnerability. He was hunted by King Herod from from the moment he was he arrived. He walked through life like you and me. There was no majesty or beauty. To, there was no halo and blue eyes that we could go, oh, Jesus, right? he blended blend in. What about covenant? What about covenant? Did Jesus have that? Well, in the Garden of, in the garden of, of Gethsemane, God the Father basically said, I'll paraphrase it, but God the Father basically said, Either you get hell on the cross or you lose your friends. You know what Jesus said? Give me hell on the cross. I want my friends. Does that take a little commitment and some grit? Absolutely. See, your friendship, your friendships, whether they, whether they win or fail, depend on the cross, depend on your view of your friend for you. You will not be a good friend until you realize the friend Jesus is to you. You cannot be a good friend. To the degree that you realize your friendship with Jesus, to that degree you will be able to to give that enduring passion and promise vulnerability to others. Your friendship runs through the cross. It runs through this sacrament here. Today, communion reminds us of what it means to be Friends, let me ask you a few things as we close. What kind of friend are you? Are you safe? That means can someone tell you something and you will not let that thing out to anyone else? Can someone, can I depend on you to come to you and share something really vulnerable and know that the rest of the church isn't gonna be talking about it next week? Can you be, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the Harry Potter books, there's a special wizard that has special powers called a secret keeper. And it's literally life or death because someone tells this wizard with the gift of secret keeping where they are, where Harry is, it keeps Lord Voldemort from finding him and killing him because there's this magic that this person will not tell. It's sealed, it's shut, and nothing can get in. Can you be that kind of a friend where you're that safe? But can you also listen and can you wound when you need to? Can you say, even though this might hurt, I'm sorry that this hurts you, but I I have to say it. My friend last night on the phone said, Mike, I would be a horrible friend to you if if I did not say, whammo, and he got me. And it it smarted. It hurt. I was a little worse for wear. I had to kind of shake it off. Call Nicole. <laughs> you just told me this. She's like, I love that guy. <laughs> Thank God for your friends. And I could get back into it. Can you do that? Can you receive that? Can you say, even if you disagree with your friend, can you say, hey, I don't agree with you and that hurts, but we're good. I know you love me. I know it comes from a place of love. Is that where you're at? And you won't be able to unless you realize that that's been Jesus for you. Can you sacrifice your own dreams, your own wants for someone else? That's the stuff friendships are made out of and that's what we're, of course, that's the kind of community and society that marks a church. Love, commitment, commitment vulnerability belief sacrifice sacramental redemption the end uh, in chapter 20 david says to jonathan or excuse me jonathan says to david when John, when david flees he finally leaves the he leaves the house of Saul to go on the run. David, uh, Jonathan says, don't fear because we've made a covenant with each other between my house and your house forever. You don't have to be afraid. I remember I'm renewing the memory of that covenant. Is there someone in your heart, in your life, that you need to renew your covenant to them? Doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean that it's going to be fair. It'll probably be very messy. But is there someone that you need to say, I'm not permitted to leave them? I'm not permitted to not be committed to them anymore. But how do you do that? How do you get over the hurt or maybe the betrayal? How do you get over the vulnerability? Have you been hurt so many times? I say, think of Jesus. When you take communion, think how easy it would have been for Jesus just to leave. To say, Well, I'm done. I tried. Look what I did. Man, I came as a baby. I walked your life, I lived a, a, a life of, of suffering. I'm done. I'm out of here. I just can't do it anymore. I think I feel like I've done enough. If he would have done that, we all—well, none of us would be here. <laughs> We'd be going into an eternity without God. But because he stayed in, and there's several people that he died for. Think of this—that he knew would not, would still not accept him. you that are parents, would you give your child away to a gruesome death if you knew that the people that he died for weren't going to accept him anyway? Would still go on hating you forever? (laughs) Behold the love of God. He died for his enemies. It's only from that place of the cross that we can offer that to others.